As I said, we are talking about, really talking about work, and we want our work to go well. We want our jobs, our careers, the vocations we have, we want our work to go well. The amount of time that you spend working is about a third of your life. It's, it's a lot. To, to work takes up one of the largest chunks of time that you actually have. About another third is sleeping, and the other third is probably spent looking for shows to watch on Netflix. That's basically the three-thirds of your life. And so to figure out how our life and our faith connect is essential because it is such a big part of our life. It is at your work that so much of your faith actually will get played out. When are you going to love your neighbor? Well, so much of that is going to get played out at work. When are you going to learn what it looks like to deal with fear and anxiety? So much of that will play itself out at work. When are you going to learn what it looks like to love your enemies? So much of that will get played out at work. So much of our lives and the things that God calls us to, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and all of these different things, so much of that will actually get played out in the context of your work because that's a third of your life. And maybe if you don't have kind of a traditional job, you might think, well, this doesn't apply to me, but so much of it applies to everybody, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you're retired or whatever it is, a lot of these same things apply to the vocation, whatever that is, that God has given to you. And often, some of the biggest challenges in our life come from our work. Some of the main temptations, some of the main relationship problems, some of the main internal struggles, insecurities, or frustrations, a lot of the various challenges and temptations and relationship issues and things that we have happen at work, which means this. It means it's crucial to know how does God and work connect? How does my faith and work connect? How does this connect to my life with God? Because if a third of our life is separated from our faith, our Christianity, our relationship with God, if a third of our life is separate from that and we think, well, faith is just kind of what happens here. Maybe even faith is just what happens with my family or in my marriage, but work is this kind of distinct thing. Then a lot of our life would be disconnected and cut off from our relationship with God and faith and Christianity. So how does faith and work connect? We don't want our work to be this third of our life that kind of negatively influences everything else, that causes pain and causes drama and causes, makes the other thirds of our life down. We want it to be actually a part of our life that influences and adds value to the rest of our life. And we've looked at how the gospel, how our faith, how who God is and what God has done for us. We've looked at how that connects to all sorts of other things in our life and brings a power and a change into them. How when you know who God is and what he's done for you, that changes your marriage, changes your family, changes community, changes how you deal with sin, changes frustrations, changes suffering. We, we've looked at how who God is and what he has done for us affects all sorts of things. There's a power that's available. What if that same power could enter into your work and a third of your life? What if the gospel and what God has done for us in and through Jesus, what if his character, what if all of that had a power that could affect your work? It does. And that is what we're going to look at today, how our faith can connect to our work. 
So let's read this passage, and then we'll explore together. Here's what it says. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your hearts as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. Now, to begin with, because this immediately is talking about slaves and masters, to begin with, before we start talking about our work, we do have to just kind of ask this question, which is, what does the Bible say about slavery? Because when you come to a text like this, it starts talking about slaves and masters. That can be a little bit jarring. So before we begin talking about our work, we have to ask, what does the Bible say about slavery? Now, sometimes this is a reason that people actually might reject Christianity or might reject the Bible is to say, the Bible endorses slavery. This can't be good. How could you listen to anything else it says if it talks about slavery? This can be one of the things. If Maybe even if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this might be something that you're like, yeah, that's why I, I can't really take the Bible seriously because it says things about this. How could a book that purports to be from God be so backwards when we know that slavery isn't good? And there's a lot that we could say about that, but I want to give you some comments. First of all, speaking to slavery doesn't endorse it. The same way that speaking about sickness or speaking about suffering doesn't endorse it. What Paul is doing is speaking to the condition that people find themselves in. So if God says, hey, I want to talk to you about suffering, that doesn't mean that God is pro-suffering. If God says, I want to talk to people that are in prison, that doesn't mean that God is pro-being in prison, suffering for your faith. But God speaks to us in the condition that we find ourselves in. That's actually good. That if this is written 2,000 years ago and there are people that are slaves and there's people that are masters that have become Christians, God is speaking to them and what happens in their life and their faith now that they belong to Jesus. So to speak to something doesn't endorse something. And secondly, whenever we think about slavery, what do we think about? We think about American slavery, right? We think about the slave trade and all that was happening. That's what our mind immediately goes to. And 2,000 years ago, kind of in the Roman Empire, the slavery system was way different. It doesn't mean it was good. I'm not saying, yeah, it was awesome. Everybody just got along and it was wonderful. I'm not saying that. But it was a lot different than slavery that we know from American history. Here's a commentator on this that is helpful. It says, in the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race. So it wasn't race-based by speech or by clothing. They were sometimes more highly educated than their owners and held responsible professional positions. Some persons sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage. They could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 to 20 years of service or by their 30s at the latest. They were not denied the right of public assembly, were not socially segregated, at least in the cities. They could accumulate savings to buy their freedom. Their natural inferiority was not assumed. So slavery wasn't this race-based kind of thing. You could, slaves could own slaves. It, it was a lot different. A lot of times people sold themselves into slavery for economic reasons. It, so that's not to say that it was just like a wonderful institution. We should go back to this. It was great. But it is way different than what we think of as race-based, kidnapping-based, 
slavery in American history. It's a lot different than that. Still, we could say, but why didn't Paul just write and say, let's just end slavery? Why didn't, it just, why didn't the Bible just say, all right, it's over now? And part of that is because the church was a persecuted minority that to then come out and just say, let's end slavery, isn't what the intention of the New Testament authors were writing for. They were writing to Christians to help them learn what it meant to have faith in Jesus and to live in an environment that was persecuting them, to live in an environment that was hostile to God, to live in an environment that was not Christian. What does it look like to live in that, not to overthrow the government? Had they done that, immediately it probably would have been wiped out. So that wasn't the intention of what was being written. So it's not so much that the Bible is like an abolitionist tract that was written. It wasn't so much that it taught against slavery per se. But what it did do was lay the groundwork for things that eventually did wipe out slavery. What the Bible did wasn't necessarily say, here, I'm going to write this letter on how this is bad. But what it did was talk about, here's who God is. Here's what life with him looks like. And that is what eventually led to the end of slavery. Here's some things the New Testament does say. Slave trading is condemned. Paul talks about this list of sins and all the different, says slave trading to steal people and sell them into slavery condemned. Had people just listened to this, we wouldn't have had anything like we had in America and Europe. Secondly, slaves are told to be free if they can in 1 Corinthians. If you can get your freedom, get it. All abuses towards slaves is condemned, both the passage we're looking at and in Colossians. Any mistreatment of slaves, totally condemned. The gospel makes slaves and masters brothers. There is a whole letter that is written about a master And Paul encouraging him to free his slave and welcome him as a brother, since now they are in the Christian family together. And fifth, the absolute equal worth and dignity is given to slaves. There isn't a distinction that's made between free and slave and master and slave, but you all, even in this text, we'll look at in a moment, but you all have the same master. You all are to show each other dignity and value. You all are brothers and sisters. There is neither slave nor free. We are all one in Christ is what Galatians 3, 28 says. So all of these things is what eventually led to the abolition of slavery, which is why in America, in the early years of slavery, they would have Bibles where they would actually cut out giant chunks of the Bible. This is uh, from a Bible uh, museum, but this is what is now known as the slave Bible from the 1800s, omitted key passages that could incite rebellion a lot of the stuff that we just looked at. It was just totally, huh, why is there a giant scissor mark on this Bible? And they would just cut those things completely out and be like, here you go, slaves, here's a a good Bible for you. But they would remove all of those things. So there's even like this burnt conscience of people that maybe claimed Christianity and yet knew we've got to cut out chunks of the Bible in order to give this Bible away, of knowing what we're doing is actually wrong, but, but let's just kind of keep going. This was the slave Bible. So there's a lot that we could still continue to explore around this, but the bottom line is that the Bible doesn't endorse slavery. It laid the framework for it leading to its end. The the early abolitionists weren't just people that said, we believe in human rights. It was people that were Christians appealing to texts of the Bible that were made in the image of God and other things that I just put up here. 
So God allowed these things to be the, the end of slavery through passages like this. And yet the Bible wasn't written as an abolitionist tract. It was written to people that find themselves in slavery or in various conditions or in persecution and written to say, here's how God can help you in the middle of this. Okay, now, none of you are slaves. None of you are masters of slaves, I hope. If so, raise your hand and we'll call the police. Um, So none of you are slaves and none of you are masters. And yet we can still gain from this principles that just relate to our work. If this is true with slaves and masters, how much more true with employers and employees? If it's true in un if it's true in conditions that are not good, how much more true is it in conditions where you're actually getting paid for your employment and things like that? So we can still learn what God says about our work and how faith connects to work and how there's a vision for our work and practices that help us in our work. And so that's what we've moved to now. And the first question is this, what is the guiding principle for our work? What's the guiding principle? And here's what I mean by this. Why do you work? What's your work about? Why do you have a job? What's it all for? What's the reason? What's, what's the thing that kind of motivates you? Why does it exist? Why, why are you working? What is it for? And a lot of us would answer, money. I work to get paid. So what? So I can take care of my family. So I can fund my vacation. So I can do fun things in the city. So I can buy a house. So I can be safe and secure. Since maybe there's financial insecurity. A lot of it, we would say, is for money. And money for various things. Whether it's safety or spending or security or various kinds of things. Maybe status. We work because it offers us some kind of sense of status. That might not be true for all of you, but to be able to introduce yourself and say, here's what my job is, it can give us a sense of identity, a sense of status. Sometimes we might say that our work is to fulfill us. Often it is used in language of like, I want to find a job that makes me happy. I want to find a career that's fulfilling to me. And it might even be less about the money. It might even be less about the status that it gives you. But it's something that you want to feel fulfilled in. Something that you go, yeah, I really, man, I am passionate about my work. Something that offers a sense of fulfillment to us. Sometimes we just ignore it. We don't even know. I don't know what the, the purpose is. I don't know what the guiding principle is. I don't know why I'm working. I just... Someone kind of made me do this. They made me go to college, and then afterwards, I, someone made me put together a resume, and I, don't, I got a job. I don't know. I'm just working and not even thinking about it. Sometimes that's what it is. What is your vision or guiding principle, or why is it that you're working? What's it for? What we see here is if we don't have a guiding principle, we won't be able to experience the power, the good, and the building in our life that God has for us. And here's what Paul gives to us as the guiding principle. He says it's for Jesus. All of this is filled with saying, here's, it doesn't matter what your work is, if you're a slave and you're responsible for kind of higher class things, you were a slave but you were a doctor, or you were a slave but you were a sweeper. It, it doesn't matter. 
Paul says all of it is for Christ. You are a slave of Christ. It's done to the Lord. You receive back from the Lord. He's talking about the master that's, that's yours, that you're actually serving, whether you're an employer or an employee in heaven. All of it he is throwing throughout this whole thing. He is saying it's for Christ. It's with Christ. It's by Christ. It's in Christ. It's rewarded by Christ. It's, it's for him. It's all of that. He says, here's the guiding principle. And this is the same thing that Paul has done with marriage and what he's done with parenting and is to say it is about and for Christ. That's the guiding principle. Your work is for Christ. Your work is seen by Christ. Your work is to be done as to the Lord. All of it is about Him. So if you're a an employer, if you're a boss, or if you're an employee, you're a worker, whatever your job is, tech, education, sales, construction, whatever your job is, Paul says it's for not just money, not just security, not just status, not fulfillment, but it's for Christ. It's for the Lord. It's for Jesus. This is the guiding vision now, here's why this is important. There's a lot of different things that might be a guiding vision. Imagine if you were to have a job and they said, look, this is going to be a difficult job, but for this year, we're going to pay you $10 million. So you would probably go, wow, this might be hard. This might be difficult, but there's a guiding vision of what's it for that would motivate you. There's a guiding vision that would get you to work. If you do this job well, if you show up, if you do all the things that you're required, $10 million. You would say, that's a, all right, that'll get me out of bed. That'll make me work hard. That'll make me do some stuff. There's a guiding vision. It doesn't matter how, even if they said, here's what you need to do. You need to screw a little nut on a screw and do that a thousand times, a, you know, 20,000 times a day. Just that's it. You wouldn't care. You'd be, this is awesome. I love this job. You know, it wouldn't matter. Or think about maybe something that's true versus the $10 million situation. In World War II, especially, World War I, some, but in World War II, it was kind of like the whole country really came together. And everybody knew what we are doing is for a greater vision. What we are doing is for a greater purpose. Men, women, everybody coming together. Rations and having not to use as much rubber and having to be careful about these things and having your lights out and all, you know, drills and also people going to work and women going to the factories. And everybody was like, we have to work together because there's a guiding vision of defeating Nazis. That's a valuable guiding vision that caused people to come together, to work hard, to sacrifice. And they knew what it was for. Or one other illustration. There's a, this is old now, but maybe some of you saw it. It's maybe 10 or 15 years old. There was kind of a viral video TED Talk that was going around by a guy named Simon Sinek. And he talked about the golden circle for companies. And that a lot of times, it was kind of a business consulting thing, but talking about how a lot of times people focus on the how or the what but really in a company, if you want to motivate workers or if you want to be successful as a company, you need to know what your why is. You need to know what the why is. What is it all for? What's the reason? And helped people experience and, 
and be able to see, oh yeah, if I don't have a why for my work, it's, it's not as valuable. If I don't have a why for my work, it's harder to motivate people. If I don't have a why for my product, it's harder to sell it to people. That the why really matters because it gives a guiding vision. It gives a guiding principle. That's what Paul's doing here. But he's giving us something better than defeating Nazism. He's giving us something better than just being able to sell a product. He's giving us something better than five, ten million dollars. He's saying all of your work is worship. All of your work is for Jesus. All of your work is actually sacred. All of your work is something that is actually used to honor God. It's something that is actually available and able to bring honor to him and say, God, I'm doing this for you. That transforms all of our work because it doesn't matter if you've got a prestigious job or if you've got a fast food job. And I'm not knocking any of those. If you're like, hey, God is saying all of that can be valuable. All work can be done as worship. All work that is good work is done in a way that can bring worship and glory to God. See, here's the thing. God created work. You don't, your work isn't by accident. Your work isn't, it might feel like this, but your work isn't a result of sin. God created work all the way back in the garden. All the way back in Genesis, God created work. We think a lot of times work is this bad thing. We have to, uh, God created work. It's how the world that he made gets cultivated. It's how the world, it's how his image is often reflected in the world. It's how God often cares and serves the world that we live in. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, talked about when we pray, uh, God, give us our daily bread. When we pray that, God, would you give us our daily bread in the Lord's Prayer? He says, think about all the steps that have to happen in order for God to answer that prayer. Now, God could, because he's God, you would say, God, would you give us our daily bread? Poof! Oh, what was that? A loaf of bread just hits you in the face, right? You're like, ah, can I get a gluten-free one? You know, or whatever, right? God could do that, but that's not what God does. What does God do in order to answer the prayer of daily bread? Well, there's a farmer, the plants, and there's the tractor company that builds the tractor for you know, John Deere. And there's, uh, I'm just, you know, we'll just keep going with this. But then there's, uh, there's the, the baker that's actually got to bake the bread. But there's also the city employees that have to pave the roads that get the bread truck to you. And there's the bread truck driver. And there's the guy that stocks the bread at King Supers or wherever it is. And there's the policemen that make sure that people aren't just robbing the bread. That way that you are able to get your daily bread. There's all sorts of things that actually have to happen in order for society to function, for you to get the daily bread that you are asking God for. See, all good work is actually participating in God's work. All good work that we do is participating in reflecting God's image, in serving and caring for God's world and and people in God's world. All good work is participating in God's work. So, The guiding principle for our work is this is worship. It's for Jesus. God cares about your work. 
God sees your work. It's not a result of sin. It's not an accident. It's not just kind of a necessary evil. It's not something just for money or for fulfillment or to be able to fund various things or make sure that you're safe or secure. Your work is something that God has given to you, and it's an act of worship. It's something for him. This adds tremendous value to our work. It also helps us correct and go, well, God actually really cares about my work. And God speaks to work often throughout the Bible. Oftentimes, our work is hard or it's done wrong because we've lost the guiding principle. But if we have a guiding principle for our work that's better than just defeating Nazis or better than $10 million, if we have a guiding principle for our work, this is worship. It's for Jesus. That transforms our work. And what Paul gives to us here is a guiding principle that adds tremendous value and motivation and purpose to our work, better than all the other things that often we gravitate towards. If we have this guiding principle, how does it change our work then? If you have the guiding principle that it's worship, that it's for Jesus, how would that change our work? And there's five different key areas that we can see from this text. And often these are the areas that we struggle with in work. The first thing that it would change is this. It would change our heart that we bring to work. He, he begins saying, in the sincerity of your heart. So not just your actions, but it would actually change the heart that you enter into work with. So he's talking about instructions of how we're going to work and what we're going to do, but he starts with the sincerity of your heart. It means the way you are showing up, not just in what you do, but the heart that you bring to work is transformed if you know that it is for Christ. And the truth is, often our heart's not in it, right? Oftentimes we might say, uh, yeah, just kind of going through the motions. I just clock in, clock out. Can't wait till Friday. Tomorrow is the M word, right? We're like, oh, it's Monday. And we, our heart's not actually in it. Work is a necessary evil. Our heart isn't there. We might even just kind of feel like, eh, work doesn't really matter. It's just a job. A lot of times people say that. Just a job. Doesn't really matter. Just trying to get paid. Maybe it's even, this is just, you know, this is, this work doesn't matter. It's just kind of the first step to what really matters. Maybe one day I'll care about my work. Maybe one day my heart will be involved in my work because then I'll have the job that I really want. But right now, eh, it's just kind of the first step on the ladder. Nobody cares about the first step on a ladder. Didn't feel like you accomplished much. He says, this gives you a different kind of heart. Our work is changed because we have a sincere heart. And here's some things that would change. See, if, if you have a sincere heart, there's all sorts of things that will be different. Because with an insincere heart, with an insincere heart, a lot of the work problems that we experience are the result. With an insincere heart, when your heart's not involved, here's some of the things that happen. And it's just kind of the opposite of what he says. He, he talks about doing God's will from your heart. But what that means is this. With an insincere heart showing up, we are going to have loose ethics. We're not going to be caring so much about what's God's will. The reality is a lot of times we do things in work that we don't do other places. 
gossip is okay at work. We even talk about like, oh, and I know this is maybe like a little bit dated, but the concept is still present of like, oh, what's the, the water cooler gossip? Like here's this uh, pitcher of water and we all gather around it and talk about our coworkers. We would never be like, oh yeah, here, or we would never endorse, it might actually happen, but we would never endorse, oh yeah, there's a water cooler over there and, and anytime you want to gossip about people in church, just kind of hang out over there. We would never think that was okay, but in work, it's just like, yeah, that's fine. It's okay in work to steal. Might be stealing time, might be stealing supplies. Like no one's going to miss this stapler. No one's going to miss whatever this, uh, you know, ream of paper for my printer at home. We do things at work that we, our, our ethics are loose, partially because we come with an insincere heart. Our heart's not actually involved in it. Our ethics are loose. It also, when we have an insincere heart, produces laziness. It says, don't work only while being watched. See, the Bible might be old, but it's relevant. This hasn't changed. So easy to be like, oh, here's the boss. Oh, get to work. Do something. I don't, start typing. That's not even a computer. Just start doing something. It's easy to work hard while being watched. Have you ever felt the employer come in and then all of a sudden start doing things? Paul says, with an insincere heart, it will produce laziness. I remember when I was a waiter and corporate would come in. I was a, I was a waiter, corporate would come into the restaurant and everybody would be on their best behavior, do all the things that we're supposed to do. They would even check like, are you washing your hands the right amount of time? Just like, oh yes, I, I, I always wash for two minutes, lathering up to the top of your arms, you know. And everybody would just be doing exactly because corporate was here. Well, that's working while being watched. If I, sit, if I was a waiter and I said, yeah, we don't really wash our hands when the boss isn't here. That's, that's gross. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I don't really care that much of if the food gets out. Yeah, maybe I'm kind of rude to the customers or maybe I, eh. When you work only while being watched, that shows an insincere heart. This is, a, this is like a crisis right now, by the way. And there's tons of news articles about our workforce and how everybody's lazy and especially as everything through COVID moved to a lot of at-home stuff and people are working like two jobs, but really it's like, oh, I'm kind of just barely doing anything on here and barely doing anything on here. I'm able to get by. It's a crisis of laziness. I read an article this morning that was talking about how easy it is actually to get ahead in your work right now. If you just have good manners and do a normally good job, it'll be like, whoa, this guy's amazing. Like, think about the difference of when you go to Chick-fil-A versus Burger King, and you're like, does Burger King still exist? You're like, yes, it does, but there's a reason. Like, could I get this? Yes, my pleasure. At Burger King, can I get this? Huh? That's more what you're going to get, Right? It's not that hard. Don't work only while being watched. He says, our tendency, if you have an insincere heart, which comes because you're not worshiping, then you're going to be lazy. You're going to be lazy. You feel that in your job? Or we might only be working for credit as people pleasers. That with an insincere heart, we work only to get attention. 
we work only to get noticed. We work only to get recognized. We work only to get promoted, which often actually keeps us stuff, stuck in a cycle of I'm, I'm working, but I'm only working when people are watching to please people. But then our work often isn't actually that high of quality. And then we don't get noticed the way we wanted to get noticed. And we're actually working just for a person. But then maybe that person leaves and then the new guy doesn't even like us. Or the, and it can st- stick you in a cycle when you're just working to please people instead of actually working for the goodness of the work. Or, with an insincere heart, we have a bad attitude. He says, serve with a good attitude, which means the tendency is to serve with a bad attitude. We work with a bad attitude. We might do what our job is, but we're grumbling about it, complaining about it, just kind of, huh, bored, not bringing an energy into it, just kind of, eh, whatever. That's not a good attitude. We complain, complain about the actual work, complain about the bosses around us, complain about the coworkers around us, complain that it's not fulfilling. We were told we could do anything we wanted, and now we're in a cubicle. We could, you can be anything you want to be in this cubicle. And uh, this isn't fulfilling. It's a bad attitude. All of this happens from an insincere heart, which is why he begins with, if you know that you are working for Christ, that all of your work is actually worship, all good work is a part of God's work. If you know that, if you know this is for Jesus, that changes the way you show up with your heart. It changes how you would show up to work. But if you lose that, you lose the guiding principle. If you lose that, you lose the guiding principle and work does become drudgery. Work does become laziness. Work does become all of those diff- bad attitude and loose ethics. And what Paul is saying here is if you work with worship in mind, it gives you actually better work. When you know all of my work is worship, all of my work is worship, that transforms the work. It can actually give you a deeper joy because you know I'm doing this and it's honoring God. I'm doing this for him. It transforms the world. You can, you can show up with a greater joy. You can show up. If you love God and want to honor God, then if work is worship, it's actually a joy to you to say, I'm, I'm serving God right now. I get to honor God right now. I'm not just doing something for a paycheck. I'm honoring my Lord, my Savior. It changes your work when it becomes worship. So the first way that work changes based on the guiding principle is that it changes our heart in our work. The second way it changes is that it changes, and some of these we already looked at just kind of the negative, but it changes the performance of our work in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Think about what would change if you knew, I am serving Christ. How would your performance at work change if you said, this isn't just for people, this isn't just for a paycheck, this isn't just for a company, I am serving Jesus. As a waiter, there was a couple times, not often, but where a celebrity had come in. One time, at the time, she, I didn't even know who she was, but she had a reality show, Hulk Hogan's daughter. And she came, I think, I don't know what her name was, but she came in, maybe Brooke or something, something with a B, 
Oh, it's Brooke. Okay. So uh, I guess I, I did know. So she, she came in and my friends were like, hey, do you know who that is? I was like, a, a blonde girl? I don't know. Like, that's Brooke Hogan. And I was, who's Brooke Hogan? Oh, it's Hulk Hogan. Oh, Hulk Hogan. I loved Hulk Hogan. Is your dad here? You know. Um, so, but I, I've served her probably a little different. Here's an important person. Here's a celebrity. I might get a good tip. Here's somebody that is famous. I don't want a negative review from a reality star, right? You serve sometimes different. If the president of the United States came into your work, whether you like them or not, you probably would serve a little bit different. If somebody famous comes in, you would probably serve a little bit different in whatever job that you do. Even you work for customer service and they say, hey, you work for Xfinity and they're like, uh, you know, Tom Cruise is on the line. He's having trouble with his internet. Can you, you're going to probably serve him different. And whether that's good or bad, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's kind of human nature that when someone's important, when someone's famous, we often serve different. What if you knew that on the other end of whatever your work is, you were serving Jesus? You were building Jesus's home. You were teaching Jesus's kids at school. You were cleaning Jesus's house. I know some of those can maybe sound silly, but if you knew on the other end of what I'm doing, I'm serving Jesus, wouldn't that change your work? I'm managing Jesus's money. Wouldn't it change your work to say, I'm serving not people, but Jesus? See, this changes our work because it actually changes our performance in our work. If you're serving Jesus, you're going to serve with excellence. You're going to serve proactively, bringing your best to the table, not, well, someone asked me to do it, I'll do it. You're going to serve eagerly, proactively. How can I go above and beyond? What can I do? How can I, how can I make this awesome? You're going to serve eagerly with actually a heart that's like, I want to do this. Yes, let me serve Jesus. Sign me up. You're going to serve with excellence, you're going to serve with proactivity. You're going to serve with eagerness. You're going to be bringing your best if you know it's not for people, it's for the Lord. It would change our performance in our job. If we said, this isn't just for me. This isn't just for a paycheck. This isn't for my fulfillment. And is this job fulfilling to me or not? But when you said, I am serving Jesus. That will change your work. It'll give you a great joy. It'll give you a great honor to say, I get to serve Jesus. And it changes actually the quality of your work. You want to get promoted in your work? Take this passage seriously. Say, I am going to ask that all my work be done as worship, and I'm going to serve as if I'm serving Jesus. People go, why are you serving so good? Why, why is your attitude different? Why is your quality different? Why is your, why? Because I know I'm doing this for Jesus. That will change your work. Both the heart of it and the outcome, the output of it. So that's the second thing. The first thing that it changes is our heart as we show up to work. The second thing that it changes is our performance in our work. And then third, it changes the ethics in our work. When he says, obey your human masters with fear and trembling. And then later to do God's will, not even just the master's will, but to do God's will from your heart. This changes the ethics in our work. 
First, we follow what's laid out. It is a principle that we are to obey. If you you get hired at a job and they say, here's kind of the company manual and the company policies, and you go, okay, that's nice. Who cares? You're not honoring what has been laid out here, which is that we are to obey. But even more than just what's been laid out, we are to do God's will, which means all of the ethical looseness that can happen at work, that's not happening. Because we're saying, I'm not actually working for my employer. I'm working for God. And so I don't gossip and I don't lie and I'm not impatient and I'm not, I'm not deceiving and I'm not cheating and I'm not fudging on this and I'm not just doing this to get ahead. I am doing God's will because God cares about my work and I am coming to obey him and honor him in my work. This changes how we think ethically. It also, for some of you, especially as our culture begins to change more and more, means there's certain points where you have to hold the line and go, what can I do and not do as a Christian? Can I be faithful in my job and at the same time be faithful to God's will? Because if work doesn't matter, God doesn't care about it, it's easy to go, well, whatever, this is just my job. I can just go along with it. But if you understand this is for God, then it actually means that what God says, you have to at times hold the line and not compromise. And I think that'll get harder and harder. Are you willing? Have you been faced with opportunities where you have to compromise? If you are able in your job, if you are told to not do something that's in line with God's will, have you been presented with those things? Sometimes that's cultural issue, issues around sexuality or other things. Sometimes it's just even your boss asks you to be dishonest about something because it's going to be good for him. Are there times that you've been presented and told, just it doesn't really matter. Everybody does this. Just go along to get along. To do God's will means we say, I am honoring him in my job. And there's places where I have to hold the line where I'm willing to lose it all to honor him. As a side note, that's one reason, if any of you have entrepreneurial sense, to start Christian businesses so that you can employ Christians that can be Christians without having to disobey God's will. So go start a company for some of you. Don't do it if it's not good and it just fails. Uh, (laughs) it also changes our relationships in work, which is another key area that often we're faced with. Look at how he talks about serving with a good attitude. And then down here, masters treating your slaves without threatening them. Both of these imply that there's a difficulty, one on the employer side and one on the employee side, that relationships often can be in tension at work, that there can be a reason to have a bad attitude because the people you're working with, that there can be a reason for a master to try to use threats to control the the employee because they're not doing what they want them to. That oftentimes work creates some relational tensions that take place. Oftentimes work is a context where you will be sinned against. You will be treated unjustly. You will be threatened. You will be coerced. You will be forced. You will be treated harshly. You will have lazy employees 
You will have employees with bad attitudes. You'll have coworkers that cause drama. Oftentimes, work is a place that you will be sinned against. Top down, down up, left right, you'll be sinned against. Oftentimes, that is true in our work. And we're tempted to react in some of these kinds of ways. Tempted to retaliate. Tempted to gossip. Tempted to not be gracious, not be kind. We're tempted oftentimes in our work situations. When was the last time you felt some of that in your job? We are tempted to react in various ways, but what if we didn't gossip? What if we forgave? What if we sought to make peace and reconcile? What if we sought to to be gracious to people? What if we sought to love our neighbor, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to do good to those who are against us? What if we sought to do that? What if we sought to have a good attitude? What if even if you are an employer and, and even when people aren't doing what they're supposed to, you don't, you don't resolve to threats? What if we brought grace into what we did? It would change our relationships. And Paul says to treat people with honor to treat people with respect. And he says part of the reason for this is when he's speaking to the masters, he says, you both have the same master, God, and there's no favoritism with him. Part of what he is saying here is, look how God treats you. Look how God views you. We're all under his authority, and God isn't playing favorites We're all under God's authority, and God is a gracious master. God's a loving master. God is kind to us. God is patient with us. God cares for us. God values us. How would that transform if you are an employer? And how would that transform if you are an employee, even if your boss isn't like that, if you remembered, that's who the one I'm really working for is like? They might be being rude to me. They might not care for me. They not, might not see me. They might not. But my true master, who I'm actually working for, he does. It would change the way that we relate with our relationships in work when we remember our true master. And then the final kind of key area in our work is it changes how we think about our recognition. He says, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. God rewards the work. Now, this is so important in work because oftentimes, for some of us, the main source of our identity, of our satisfaction, can be our work. It can be the place that we look to to say, this will fulfill me, or if it's not fulfilling me, I feel unfulfilled. I need to find something else. And really, we're longing for a recognition. We're longing for a work that feels like it's valuable, that it matters to us, to other people. We want it to be validated. Which can lead to feeling like I have to be noticed. I have to be appreciated. I have to be written up on the the board of, you know, employee of the month, or I have to get a shout out on the Zoom call, or I have to, I have to get a thank you note, or I, I have to kind of be no, acknowledged. I, if, if I don't get the credit for what I did, 
If I don't get seen, if I don't get promoted, if I don't get a bonus, if I don't get rewarded, if I don't get, if I don't get noticed, it creates a lot of problems. It can create that insecurity. It sometimes can create an overwork and burnout where we're just, okay, I guess it wasn't enough. I got to keep trying. I got to work evenings. I've got to just kind of keep pushing. Sometimes it just creates a jealousy with other people. Like, well, they got noticed. They got recognized. I'm working hard. They got rewarded. Sometimes it creates just a dissatisfaction that this job isn't fulfilling enough. I need something better, more important, where I'm more valued. I'm not saying that none of that is ever good, but that hunger for that recognition is an endless pit that most of the time doesn't get filled. But what Paul gives to us is something better. He says, whatever your work is, Jesus sees it. Whatever your work is, whether it's considered valuable in society, whether when you introduce yourself, you have a lot of pride because you get to say, I am blank and I work for blank, or whether it is kind of shame-inducing, whether it feels unimportant, whatever it's like, Paul says, God sees your work and whether it's recognized and noticed and rewarded by other people as justly as it should be or not, it says, Jesus will reward you. Think about that. What if that's not just kind of religious speak, but what if that's actually true? That whatever good in your work, not just kind of generally speaking, but whatever good each one does, he will receive this back from the Lord. God sees your work and he rewards your work. The good that you do in your work, because it's done in worship of God, and it's done excellently and eagerly and proactively and not lazily. And it's done with a sincere heart. And it's, it's done ethically and it's done graciously. And, it's, and you're bringing it to work as you're bringing yourself to work as an act of worship. God rewards that. Sometimes Christians don't like that reward language. I don't know. They think it's too, uh, I don't know. I don't know what Christians think, but they, they don't like it. Like, oh, rewards, isn't that not grace-based? Well, I mean, the Bible talks a lot about this. God sees your work, and when it's done as an act of worship to him, he rewards it. That's the truth. He, which means anytime you have not been noticed, and maybe you should have, God didn't miss it. God saw it. And anytime you were doing your best, in secret, God saw it. And whether or not you're a slave or you're the master, whether or not your job is significant or insignificant, whether or not it's something that people go, ooh, you do that? Or something that people go, oh, that's too bad. Whatever it is, slave or free, God, God doesn't show favoritism like that. God sees, are you worshiping in your work? And when you are, he rewards that. Whether you are the CEO of a company or you're the sweeper at Burger King, God says, if you show up doing your work as worship, I reward that. I see it. I value it. 
It matters to me. This gives a tremendous dignity to our work. It also should change how we treat other people in their work. Work is most of our life. It's a third of our life. A third is sleeping. Work is a lot. And it's where a lot of our faith will get played out. It might be hard for you. It might be boring for you. It might be a challenge. It might not be the job that you thought it would be. It might be awesome. You might love your job. And it's the best thing ever, but haven't really seen it like this. And it's cut off from faith. Whatever it's like, God wants to enter into your work. God wants to build this area of your life where faith and work are connected and work is worship. What could happen if another third of your life, not just the church third and the community group third and the reading your Bible third, what, what, if, a third of your, what if a whole third of your life could more so experience God's power, could be transformed with the same realities that can transform your marriage and your parenting and community? What, what if who God is and what he's done for you could enter into your work? What would happen there? Wouldn't this be better? Wouldn't it be better to have work be a part of our worship to God? It would change all of our vocations. It would change our emotions in them. It would change our actions in them and what we actually do. It would probably end up changing how we choose work. It would change all sorts of things when we see work as worship, when we see it as for Him, from Him, through Him. We're going to take communion in just a moment. And if you're a Christian, we take communion every week. There's little cups in the back if you didn't grab one. Communion is a time that we remember what Jesus did for us. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. That Jesus entered into this world doing the work that the Father gave him to do. That Jesus entered into this world doing exactly what he calls us to do. He entered in with a sincere heart. He didn't do his work begrudgingly. Jesus referred to what he did here as his work. I'm not just calling it that. Jesus called it that. Jesus showed up and said, the work that the Father has given me to do, I'm going to accomplish it. And Jesus did his job with a sincere heart, coming to save us, to forgive us, not begrudgingly, not just kind of while people were looking. When no one was looking, Jesus was like, oh, I'm going to be kind of mean over here. Here's a sick person. That's, Jesus didn't do that. He showed up with a sincere heart doing his work because he loved you. Jesus showed up doing his work with excellence and proactivity and eagerness to change us. So when we take communion, we remember God, but also the perfect man, Jesus, who did his work. And his work was to save us. His work was to bring us into his family. His work was as worship and glory to God. So as you take communion, confess where you have taken a third of your life and maybe just cut it off from God. Confess where you've been lazy or confess if you're an employer where you've mistreated those that you employ. Confess where you've had loose ethics or a bad attitude, Bring whatever it is that the Holy Spirit has brought through His Word, confess. And ask God to change your heart, to view work as worship to Him. And then 
work differently. Work as worship. And see what God does with that in your life. See how he builds you and your life and those around you into something different and better. Producing a greater value, producing a greater joy, producing a greater rest even. We have a God that has worked for us and who invites us to serve him in his world through our work as worship. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you invite us to participate with you in your world through working. That we get to be a part of what you're doing to bring daily bread. That we get to be a part of what you're doing to teach and to serve and to help and to build and to all the different vocations that the people in this room have. Thank you that we get to partner with you and to reflect your image in your world through our work. Forgive us, God, that oftentimes we disconnect our work from you. Forgive us that we can mistreat those that we work with or for or for us. Help us, Lord, to worship you through our work. I pray that you would help us to allow these truths to go deeper into our heart as we take communion and sing these songs. In your name, Jesus, amen.